Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming state by-elections in New South Wales. My guest today is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer and chair of the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi there, Ben. Voters in four New South Wales state electorates will be electing new representatives this Saturday. Three of these by-elections were triggered by the resignation of senior ministers in the former Berejiklian government, with the fourth triggered by the resignation of the former Labor leader. Former Premier Gladys Berejiklian resigned from her seat of Willoughby. Former Nationals leader John Barillaro resigned from Monero, while former Transport Minister Andrew Constance resigned from Bega. They were joined by former Labor leader Jody Mackay, who resigned from Strathfield. There was an expectation that there would be a by-election in Holsworthy. That may well still happen, depending on if the local member there is pre-selected to run for the federal election. But her plans had always been to resign later in the year once the election was called. So that will come a bit later. It's often been lumped in with the others, but that's not happening this Saturday. So, Stuart, do you think we could see any of these seats change hands? I actually think it's possible that all four could change hands. Um, Certainly... Um, there's a, a case to be made that you know the the relatively marginal seat of Strathfield, the relatively marginal seat of Monero, and the relatively marginal seat of Bega are all a little bit up for grabs. And Willoughby could well be impacted by this surge of voices of or independence. So yes, I think that some of these seats could well change hands. Yeah, maybe we go through them one at a time, and let's start with Bega and Monero, which I kind of often lump together. They are. Geographically, they're next to each other. Um, the two members both have been there for a while and have a relatively strong profile and have, well, particularly in Monero, John Barillaro has built up a margin from a seat that Labor held until 2011. And even in uh, 2015, it was still quite marginal. They also both fit within the federal electorate of Eden Monero, which has been very marginal for a very long time and is currently Labor held. And Labor did very respectably in Uh, both Queanbeyan and on the coast in the seat of Eden Monero. Just to describe them a little bit geographically, Bega is uh, Bega Valley Council and the Urubidala Council, basically a strip along the coast, and then Monero is inland. So a majority of the population of Monero is in Queanbeyan, but then it also goes down to the Snowy Mountains, covers places like Cooma. Uh, So it has a, a rural element, but Ultimately, a majority of the seat is basically a suburb of Canberra. Well, let's start with Bega. What's your take on Bega? I think Bega could well swing against um, the Conservative parties. I mean, if we take uh, the continuing um, shift of people from cities, particularly from Canberra, um, but also from Sydney to various parts of the coast in New South Wales, you know, the tree changes, whatever you want to call them, sea changes, If that is still continuing, which does appear to be, as various parts of the South Coast become more and more uh, influenced by city politics, I think you'll see an increasing number of voters who are prepared to vote against Conservative parties, so against the Liberals or against the Nationals. The fires were extreme, generated a great deal of heat, if you pardon the pun, uh, amongst uh, both fire people but also uh, electors in the seat, both of Bega and of Monero, but particularly in Bega. Um, there was talk, of course, that Andrew Constance himself was going to resign. He'd had an epiphany, then he decided to stay, then he was going to run an Abdeed Monero by election. Um, so he's jumped backwards and forwards. I think if he stayed, he'd be unassailable. People down there hadn't particularly liked him previously, but his raw emotion during the fires was something, I think, quite special. So, It's 
the Liberal Party's to lose in reality. Um, it's there. They currently hold it. They'll probably come close to losing it, particularly if there's any uh, residual anger around um, the fires, uh, lack of preparedness, uh, anger towards Scott Morrison, which often can bleed into some of these by-elections. Um, so, yes, I think Bega could fall, particularly as it's not Andrew Constance, particularly as there's a new candidate. Um, there's some other odd candidates down there, but yes. When I think about Bega, I think about uh, the fact that Labor last came into government in 1995. That's now 27 years ago. Um, it'll be 28 by the time of the next election. And in that time, like a lot has changed. And I think sometimes of them like uh, tides going in and out, election cycles. And every tide is not the same as the one before it. If you look at politics in terms of this election compared to the last election or compared to the one before, it does look a bit like the same seats swing back and forth. But over time, those seats do shift and you see demographic change or just like change about who particular groups of people tend to vote for, what issues matter. And, you know, if you look at it over the 50 or 100 year cycle, like um, the marginal seats today are very different to what they were a long time ago. And I do think there's something about Bega. Bega is one of the most marginal coalition seats that was not ever held by Labor under the previous government. There is a couple that are more marginal, Upper Hunter and Goulburn, um, but Bega is up there. You know, Bega, it's not held by that mar larger margin. A lot of the seats that are around it on the pendulum are seats that Labor uh, held in their last, maybe not the last term of government, but they held it during the last government. Yeah, I think Bega is interesting. It's one worth watching. And without Constance, I think they might struggle. Monero next door, uh, Barilaro, uh, it was Labor much more recently. Monero was Labor much more recently than Bega. He won it narrowly in 2011, won it narrowly again in 2015, again defeating the same opponent but it got a lot safer in 2019. But what we did see in the by-election, the federal by-election, is Labor is still strong in places like Queanbeyan, and um, I think they might struggle there. Your thoughts on Monero? I think that the, both the Conservative parties will struggle in um, Monero. Uh, in fact, any Conservative party at this point will struggle. Um, Queanbeyan will swing back. Queanbeyan's affected by the politics of Canberra. Uh, and the ACT, but particularly, you know, the big P politics of big P parliament in Canberra, um, because a lot of the work uh, for um, Queanbeyans or Queen, what do you, whatever you call Queanbeyan residents is based on what occurs in Canberra itself and the ACT. Um, the level of anger will be still there from the fires, but also from COVID and from weird border restrictions. Um, Queanbeyan was in, then out, and it seemed very odd at one point that, you know, you couldn't, uh, Queanbeyan residents uh, could go across the border for, for um, work, but they weren't allowed to go across the border for social gatherings, but people from ACT at one point could go to Queanbeyan. It all seems a bit odd. And I think the COVID restrictions initially um, seemed ill thought through both partly at a state level, but also at the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth, you know, is right there. It has been um, uh, clearly unable to deal with uh, how you manage a pandemic or ma a major health crisis, which is partly Commonwealth-funded. I mean, the Commonwealth wanted to be funding it for donkey's years and tried to, if you remember, how we're trying to fund hospitals. So I think it will be affected by COVID, it'll be affected by the fires, it'll be affected by the Canberra bubble, 
you know. Um, so I think there's a, a, a wide variety of different issues that would be there. And I do think that Queanbeyan um, could well influence that electorate. That said, there's some other interesting candidates floating in there. I note that um, there's certainly Kath Moore from the Greens is a former councillor. Uh, empowering council. So there'll also be people from those various areas, Braidwood, uh, the the near suburbs of Queanbeyan and Canberra, the, the places where people have started to move to um, for alternative lifestyles again. Uh, that's actually a growing area around the bottom of Lake George. So there's a group of people there who, you know, been in wineries and the like, um, could well start to think, well, maybe we don't want a, a, a national here. I mean, it's only been a few years since Barilaro was elected, um, so maybe they're not necessarily deeply into anti-conservative thinking. Um, but again, I think that it's one for the conservative parties to lose. I think the National Party uh, has not done as well as it could do. It's being dragged down by Barnaby Joyce. That may well play out well in the southern end of the electorate, you know, Cooma, Jindabyne, all the way to the, the border. But it's the areas around Queanbeyan that I think are going to be the deciding factor. It's not that Barilara did better in Queanbeyan than the rest of the electorate, but he always did surprisingly well in Queanbeyan. And I think without that, those other areas aren't, aren't going to be enough to save him. Uh, it's interesting what you talk about, those suburbs, those sort of tree changer suburbs where, you know, you can drive to Canberra, it's a bit of a longer drive, but you don't you don't live in Queanbeyan, you don't live in the city. That trend would have been fueled by the COVID lockdowns that people no longer need to go to their office. They can prioritise other things when it comes to choosing where they want to live. So there'd be a lot more of that, I'd think. And it's worth saying, just mentioning quickly, you mentioned the fires, the bushfires. Uh, that is an issue that affected both Monero and Bega. They probably are the two state electorates that were the worst affected by um, the Black Summer bushfires in 2019, 2020. You know, there were earlier fires in the North Coast and obviously it affected Victoria too, but that was the area that was probably hit the hardest was those two electorates. So um, it's definitely a factor. And it was a, an interesting factor for Andrew Constance, who's now running as a federal liberal, that he very much um, stood apart from the federal liberals and was willing to stand against them on issues around the fires. We should actually think about you know, what sort of candidates are standing there. Um, you know, you have the perennial independent, Andrew Thaler, uh, running again, who's only worth, you know, a couple of percent. Um, you know, but you do have sustainable Australia, animal justice. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much there for um, Nicole overall, uh, which I think is her name, um, to lose there. And it's going to be to, yeah, it's going to be towards Labor and Green with the minor parties filling out the, the rest. I don't think that either animal justice or um, independent Thaler will actually do terribly well, neither will Sustainable Australia. So it'll be really how people feel towards the nationals that'll make the determination. I did a blog post last week about who was running in these by-elections and one of the interesting trends is there's a lot of candidates from minor parties that I, I think can be fairly said to be vaguely of the left, you know, that they compete with the Greens, they compete with Labor for voters, um, they probably compete with Voices-style independents as well. I'm not saying they're particularly radical and um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people in the Greens would object to classifying Sustainable Australia as being part of the left, but they they compete for votes with the Greens, you know, and they they are a different kind of anti-immigrant party to um, some of the other parties that are anti-immigration, and they justify it on a different basis. So there are four Sustainable Australia candidates running. There's also a couple of Animal Justice candidates running, and a candidate for the Reason Party, which 
the New South Wales branch of Reason were basically was the Voluntary Euthanasia Party and then merged into Reason, which was a mostly Victorian-based party. So we've now got animal justice MPs in a number of states. We've got Sustainable Australia MPs around the country. Um, I feel like 15 years ago, particularly after the fall of the Democrats, the Greens largely had that space to themselves and that's very much not the case anymore. In some ways that vote is growing, but it's not all going to the Greens. Oh, I think you're quite right. I think the issue with, with a number of those parties is that um, they're tapping into a particular uh, set of ideas. Um, they've managed to break away from Labor and the Greens, so they've been able to with, uh, pull some of the votes from both of them. But I also think they're taking some votes from, the, if you like, the, the soft right, you know, if you like, the, the centrist liberals, uh, who uh, are focused on one particular issue, might be voluntary euthanasia, um, they might vote Green or they might vote Liberal, uh, but here they're given an option of a, a separate party altogether. They can feel comfortable voting for that and then go off and say, oh, no, I'll, I'll stick with the, the Liberals or some other ver- variation on a Conservative party. So I do think there's something interesting with those parties. Uh, animal justice is a, is a, a greater threat, if you want, to the Greens, because they would traditionally have been Green voters in the past. The coalition that the Greens was for so long included many of those people, but now they have outlets and other parties, particularly as you know you can get those other parties elected. And optional preferential, of course, divides the vote away from, if you like, the, the, the left of centre. Um, that said, I think that Shooters and Fishers, of course, presents the same challenge um, to the Nationals and the Liberal Party, along with any one of, not that we're seeing them here, but any one of the other 101 um, little parties that arrive certainly at the federal level and are on the right of the centre. Um, and Thaler himself, you know, as an independent, is a, a bit of left and a bit of right. You know, he's very much the localist, but, you know, he says, oh, I swear too much, you know, I'll carry on a bit. And it's like, hmm, you're going for the, you know, good bloke down the pub kind of thing. This sort of thing, in fact, that Scott Morrison has been playing on, um, except without the marketing skills, I think. Um, so, yes, I'd agree with you on that about the division of the left of centre vote. And we're going to see it this time in these by-elections. Um, we've certainly started to see more of it since the demise of the Christian Democrat Party. Uh, on the right, they've had a much more cohesive um, grouping. Um, there haven't been quite so many extreme right parties, if you like. There isn't United Australia Party at the state level. Um, wait till the federal election, and then we see United Australia Party, and that poses real problems for actually both sides, but particularly the conservative side of politics. Shooters and Fishers should play that role at a state level. With Shooters and Fishers, it's also interesting Shooters, Fishers and Farmers to give them their full title now. I believe it was in Bega they announced that they were not directing any preferences, they were just exhausting their preferences, which it's a New South Wales election, so it's optional preferential, they have that right. I thought that was interesting because there was some chatter on Twitter being like, oh, they're kind of taking themselves out, they're not, they're not having a say over who wins. But I feel like strategically there is something really interesting there about who they're aligned to and their willingness to not preference as well. Like if they want to do a deal with Labor at the election or with the Conservatives, who knows, um, they want to get their preferences, I think there's something interesting about them sending a signal going, we're not loyal, we're not just going to go with you for no reason, you need to give us something that's going to be worth it. And so I think, I don't know where that's going. Maybe it just genuinely was 
they sat around in a room and said, we're not really sure which of these candidates we prefer, so we're just going to exhaust, or some of them liked one and some of them liked the other, and that was just the politically um, sustainable thing to do. But I think that's worth watching is what do the shooters do with preferences? How how are they willing to behave? How much are they deal-making? And how that plays into the 2023 election? I think that's, that's a really interesting comment, actually, because... I think state labour is much more prepared to deal with um, shooters, fishers and farmers. They've, in the past, they've been quite happy to deal with um, Christian Democrats or deal with the shooters, say, let's give them another rifle range or something. So I think it's actually quite reasonable that, that the shooters, fishers and farmers, if they have a set program, could be able to go to both labour and liberal um, or liberal and labour uh, to say, this is what we want. You know, can you come up with this? I mean, I think it's in. I think it's their candidate, Victor Hazir, um, is actually in Balgaula, so it's not quite a local. But having a candidate there also gives something for their supporters to vote for, and something for their voters to support coming the federal election and in Eden Monero itself. So it's still signalling we're here, we're around, support us. Let's move up to Sydney now, and let's start by talking about Strathfield, which. You know, we're in, we're in an environment nationally where Labor is doing better in New South Wales. It appears Labor is doing better than they were at the last election. Uh, they're in a stronger position. The government's lost a popular leader and has a, a new leader who hasn't really settled into the job yet. Um, you might not expect this seat to be that interesting. You might expect it to easily go to Labor. And I think it is possible that's going to happen. But there is a lot of chatter about the Liberal Party threatening this seat, about Labor maybe being in trouble. I'm not really sure. Where do you think that's coming from? Two things. One, Elizabeth Farrelly, um, who uh, says that she was going to go for Labor pre-selection and wasn't pre-selected. They instead went for Jason Yatsen Lee. Um, Jason is clearly, or much more clearly, a person from the, the city's west, whereas Elizabeth Farrelly might otherwise be considered to really be from the leafy North Shore from the eastern suburbs. Um, so she's a little bit of a fish out of the, out of water, although she also picks up on, if you like, the sort of greeny types, and by that I mean uh, on the, the the soft right, centrist people, you know, sensible centre, if you like. The other part of this, though, is around Bridget Saker. Uh, she's been making quite a bit of the heartfelt um, thing, but also the I forgive. Uh, movement, which I don't know if you saw last night on Channel 7, there was a big piece on um, I Forgive that focused on the the Liberal candidate for Willoughby, so not for Strathfield, but for Willoughby, but also, I mean, that covers Bridget Saker's territory. Liz Farrelly is an interesting one. I've been thinking a lot about it because I think, I think there's a good chance she doesn't really get that many votes. She's very much appealing to... Uh, the NIMBY element, the people who don't want development, who are opposed to that agenda, quite frankly, more likely appealing to the white voters in what is quite a multicultural electorate. There's still plenty of white people around, but I I saw a photo of her meeting with a group of people in Burwood the other day and they were all every, there wasn't a single person of colour in the photo, which I thought was interesting. You know, she was a member of the Labour Party until very recently and she's not just said, I'm the better candidate, but she's not issuing preferences. She's exhausting her preferences. She said no deals. Not that preferences don't have to involve deals. You can unilaterally decide to direct preferences or recommend preferences. Um, But she's gone from trying to run for the Labor Party for council and, according to what she said, for state politics uh, a couple of months ago 
not getting pre-selected and being so distant from the party now that she won't even preference them, which I feel like at that point it's like, is it really literally just I'm upset because you didn't choose me? Because I think you can make a, a strong argument about why you're not preferencing either of the major parties, but it feels hard to make that when you're a member of one of those parties till a couple of months ago and you've indeed lost your job as a columnist for the Herald because you were doing something involved in that party. So um, it's a weird one. Uh, I feel like she's someone who isn't really sure how politics is supposed to work and how she fits into it. And it will be interesting to see, does she have volunteers? Does she have people to hand out for her? I do actually think that she will have volunteers, but they'll come from different parts of Sydney. Uh, There'll be people who will end up supporting her who may be a little bit disaffected with uh, the uh, Labor Party, perhaps little bits of the the, the old parts, if you like, the nationalistic um, parts of the Labor Party that still exist, some of the the Liberals, for that matter, in that boat. I mean, she's well known. So, again, that soft centre. I think she's completely the wrong fit for this seat. And to get to, to get the hump over, I didn't get pre-selected for this seat. It's like, seriously, you know, you should be running, you know, somewhere on the North Shore or maybe in Vaucluse or something like that, where her message would actually resonate with a lot of the people. That she really is of those kinds of people, perhaps a little bit closer in, you know, around Ashfield. But, of course, part of the problem is that those seats don't come up very often. They're sought after by the Labor Party people themselves you have to be engaged and involved um, so either you know pick a marginal liberal seat to try and take on uh, or and there's a few of those floating around so why not look at those why are you looking at um, trying to knock off a labor seat for yourself and then not direct preferences I think you're right I think that's not understanding what that's about no deals I mean that doesn't actually make any sense here um, because there, it's a by-election. It's not a general election. Nobody can give you anything. You're not going to get elected. That's right. So what what's that about? Um, you're trying to appeal to the voices type kinds of people. You know, I don't do deals. I'm an independent. Um, I actually think, you know, perhaps it would have been a better case for her to go, you know, I don't agree with the direction of this government. That's why I've been quite clear, and these are the reasons why. I will recommend... Uh, a, a preference, you know, or just go, I don't particularly want to recommend preferences because I think independents need to be independent, but this government is bad, right? And that signals to supporters, certainly those that listen, that you go, okay, well, you know, it's, we don't vote Liberal, right? We vote Farrelly and maybe we vote Labour or maybe we vote Green, you know, so Farrelly won. But I do think that she's just the wrong fit. Um, I think... Um, Jason Yatsen is a better fit for the seat. I think he's able to uh, at least connect more with the kind of demographics in Strathfield. He'd also be good, you know, across the river, Epping, Ride, those sorts of areas. Um, so he's actually a good good fit for the area. Um, and I'd like to see, you know, more of him in one sense, um, simply because I think he'd be, a you know, a, a more local, more person of colour who fits better with, you know, the, those sorts of electorates in the, in the West rather than the, the eastern suburbs types. There's an interesting trend going on in the Labor Party at the moment about who they're pre-selecting. And a friend of mine, Osman Chu, who was a guest on the last episode of this podcast last year, uh, has been pushing for that a lot. He's a member of the Labor Party and they have been, um, you know, ever since Tu Lee was put up for Fowler and missed out in favour of Christina Keneally, 
Uh, you've seen someone I went to school with, Zisun, getting pre-selected in Banks, who was in my year in high school, and uh, Sally Satu in uh, Reed. So there are a few candidates popping up. Those are not safe seats the way that Fowler would have been, but they are seats that Labor has a real chance of winning. And, uh, yeah, here they're running Jason Yatsen Lee. He's not a local to the electorate, doesn't live in the electorate, and I've seen a little bit of criticism of him for that. But it's funny because I feel like a little bit of the Farrelly thing is about well, the party came in and dropped in this person who doesn't live in this area and I'm a local, but she's only lived in the area for a few months. Is there also an element in Strathfield about we don't really know, but whether there is a bit of personal vote for Jodie Mackay that they might be losing? You know, she she resigned voluntarily, but she clearly wasn't happy to lose the leadership. Um, her case that she'd been putting to people was Berejiklian is eventually going to get knocked over by ICAC and they're going to have to replace her with someone less popular and I want to be standing there when that happens. And uh, that ended up happening, but she wasn't standing there. Do you think there's also an element there that, not even that necessarily saying there is a big personal vote for her, but people aren't really sure? That may well be true, actually. Um, I never thought there was a big personal vote for her. Remember, she moved down from uh, Newcastle to be in Sydney. Um, she was relatively popular up on the, the uh, around Newcastle and the Hunter. Um, so I don't think people really have known her very well. Um, yes, you can get to know people, you know, fairly quickly but she's been leader for most of that time so really what do people know about her yes she's been the leader of the Labor Party but they haven't had her on the hustings for you know 10 years they haven't had her in local council they don't really know where she's from Uh, so what's replacing her well this other person at least looks more like more people in the electorate than as I say Elizabeth Farrelly um, who will appeal to particular groups of people in the electorate. But again, I still think she's a bad fit. For the Labor Party, yes, there is a movement there to get people who look like people who live in the electorate. Um, there's a certain sense to it. Uh, whether, you know, this is the question about what happened to female candidates, you know, 30 years ago, they were put into the marginal seats. And if they won them, great. You know, then some of them were able to make it into safer seats. And then you get you get, get your way all the way up to the Keneally's who can then be parachuted into very safe seats. I think that will start to, to move within the Labor Party to increase the diversity that they just start to represent, you know, the areas that they are running in. Um, in terms of Mackay, um, yes, I think she was hoping to be the person there. I don't think she was a great performer. Um, that's unfortunate. Um, it's one of the things you kind of find out when you stand for Parliament, whether, whether you're a good performer or just a, a, a so-so performer, someone who's good on the backbench, but maybe not the leader. Um, Minns has stepped up, I think has been doing a reasonable job. Certainly we hear more from him. Um, I've seen him more often on, on television, um, but that may also just be the media going, ah, this is the you know premier in waiting. You know, now that Dominic Perrottet is not so popular, is not Gladys. You know, so maybe that's why Minns is being able to be seen simply because the media is spending their time focusing on him. I think that's perhaps what Mackay was hoping for. Well, before we get to Willoughby, which we'll talk about in a minute, one of the things about these three kind of classic Labor versus Coalition contests is it will play into the narrative around what's going to happen in 2023. You know, we've already got some polling that suggests Labor's doing better. It's not overwhelming by any means. Um, uh, Labor still has to gain some seats to be in a position to form government, but the coalition doesn't have their majority anymore. They're going to have to win seats back to regain their majority. The chances of a hung parliament seem quite high because we've already got 
not counting the Liberals who quit the party, there's nine members of the crossbench in New South Wales lower house already. And so I think that will play into that dynamic that if, if Labor does quite well in those seats, then they'll be like, okay, like Mins could be the Premier next year. People need to take that more seriously. Saturday night may well be the starting gun for the 2023 election in a way. Oh, I think you're right. I think it probably will be, you know, in, in one sense we're a year out. You know, now's the time to start staking, you know, your claim to being Premier. This is in terms of Mins or Perrottet. Uh, if they have a good night, um, think about it, and they, they win three, well, you know, all bets are off at that point. Um, I think the uh, uh, Perrottet's government is in – oh, it's, it's on shaky ground at that point – um, it doesn't have its own majority if it loses uh, Bega, Monero and Labor holds Strathfield. If it's more divided, then yes, that means that the election's on. It, it's all there to win. Um, Perrottet's got to start making some waves. He's going to want people to vent their anger at the, the Commonwealth government, um, so at Morrison, and then give him a bit of a run. Hopefully Labor wins so he can be the opposition uh, and get a bit of a run up you know, to next year. We'll just have to see. And just before we finish, let's quickly talk about Willoughby. Um, I've been assuming Willoughby will probably be safe. We haven't heard a lot about the local independent, but I have gotten a little bit of pushback from people saying there is a bit going on on the ground there, and we know that generally there is a there is a demand for and uh, energy about independents who are running on the North Shore. There's people who clearly at care, they're motivated. There's probably a latent army of volunteers there who are going, okay, where's the indie? Where's the person I can go and support? So maybe one worth watching. Be worth watching for a whole range of reasons. One, will Penn increase her vote? I mean, she got almost 10% last time. Can she take it up to 20% and be, you know, a, cha- a real challenger? Uh, and that's going to be the question, you know, can Penn or someone else start to pull serious votes away from the Liberal Party? Again, by elections, many things can happen, and I suspect that this is one where, you know, what the Liberal uh, Gladys was on fifty-seven percent, and then that's as Premier. Uh, I expect them to maybe poll around the the, the mid forties or even low forties, new candidate and all. Um, that means those votes have got to go somewhere, and then they've got to come back for them to hold the seat. That said, it's still you know it's a bit of an ask to say that they'll um, lose the seat. Um, Berejiklian was, for all the, the fact that, facts that ICAC you know, brought her down, um, was still perceived as a reasonable premier. People you know, would say, oh, no, she's been getting things done. We don't always like the way it's done, and this question of corruption is a bit problematic. Uh, this is part of the narrative that comes out. Now, obviously, the left says, oh, but of course, corrupt people should be thrown out of, uh, out of parliament. And going, yes, well, it took a long time to get some in, some in the Labour Party and other parties out. So, you know, swings and roundabouts on that one. Berejiklian built things. That's been really important for a lot of seats. Um, COVID, the initial COVID response was good, driven at the state level. So I think there's been, you know, a certain amount of, well, Gladys wasn't doing so badly. So maybe there's a little bit of soft support there still um, to come back to the Libs. Um, the other question is, and I've seen this um, floated around, is that Sustainable Australia, you know, has been able to win council seats. It's like, okay, but going from council to um, uh, to a state is a, a big jump. 
You know, you've got to really do well. And they haven't done well previously. I mean, the previous election, they polled, what, you know, 2 3%, you know, 2%. Um, animal justice, you know. Uh, there was the Keep Sydney Open candidate who polled really badly. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's, the, for, again, this is one where I actually think the Libs are going to hold on. Might be a push, might reduce the margin dramatically. That's always interesting. Might be a signal for what might occur during the federal election. And certainly if uh, Penn got 20%, uh, that would give real impetus to the, the voices for um, candidates to say, look, you know, independence doing really well. And perhaps we can take some of these seats. Would, in fact, give Frydenberg and others, and I, thinking of his seat in, in uh, Melbourne, um, would give them some pause for thought. Okay. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Stuart, for joining me. My pleasure. I will be covering the by-elections on Saturday night. And uh, we will be doing a podcast next week looking at the results and maybe talking a little bit more generally about New South Wales politics with William Bow from The Poll Bludger. That will be an excellent show. <laughs> you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.